sermons from Warren Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org. Man, church, you may be seated this morning. Uh, excited about this uh, new series. I love the book of Hebrews, and obviously I love Matthew, and my parents love Matthew too, so... Uh, so... Glad to be able to just kind of intertwine these two and what all that will look like going forward. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I pray that you do, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, I'll be kicking it off with that this morning. A couple of things, housekeeping really quick. Uh, I don't know who's running le- uh, the slides. I think it's Miss Sue. I'm going to apologize in advance because you're going to probably get me after church. Um, but if you have your outline... Point two and point three, uh, go to those first, and you'll know why in just a few minutes. Uh, Then we're going to back up to one. Uh, That all changed this morning. Uh, Don't hold it against me. I normally don't change, but uh, this morning I I, I will. So uh, anyway, Hebrews chapter one, love the book of Hebrews. Uh, I want to read the first four verses and then kind of jump into what the series is going to be about, and then also just these first a few verses. It says this, God, um, anytime it starts with God, it's always good. Uh, who at various times and in various ways spoke. Anytime God speaks, uh, we need to listen. Uh, in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Man, that is uh, that's shouting material. Whom, his son, Jesus, he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself, love that, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning, and God just one word uh, sticks out, one person, Jesus. Uh, Lord, we uh, get so caught up in so many other things, and so often we look right past Jesus. So God, my prayer is, is this morning, we just pause, we still our hearts, we still our minds, and God, we look into the face of Jesus. Uh, God, we Thank you for him. If it wasn't for him, we would be hopeless and helpless and headed to a place separated from you forever without any chance of knowing you. So thank you for Jesus. Lord, I just want to lift up his name this morning. Uh, God, because we know when his name is lifted up, Lord, it draws men to him. So God, forgive us when we don't look at Jesus, but we look past him. And this morning, God, I pray that as we jump into Hebrews and and into Matthew, that God will just uh, see Jesus. And God, when we encounter Jesus, we know it changes everything. So God, just thank you for him this morning. Lord, I do praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's kind of the kickoff to it. 
I think it was 1992, and she can correct me if I'm wrong, the first time I actually met Tiffany. The first time I met Tiffany, I was sitting on a set of drums uh, playing uh, for her, actually her sister, the Inmans, if you know the Inmans, if you know Alex, it was his parents. Uh, We were practicing for a a live album. It was an album in those days. I don't even know what they're called now. I still call them albums, CDs, whatever. Uh, They're still out there. Uh, Thank you. And so we, uh, we were practicing for that, and I think it was kind of a setup, not for sure, but Greg and Kelly, I knew Tiffany existed. I knew Kelly had a younger sister, but I'd never met her. So Tiffany was singing at Bellevue that Wednesday night. I was practicing at their house for this live album. Tiffany walks in, and just for a brief moment, and she's not going to remember it this way, but I do. Um, for a brief moment, we kind of locked eyes. She says I fell off of the drum stool. I don't remember that. I think I was leaning against the wall, but anyway, she says I did. But I knew, like, at that moment, and you hear this, Charlotte, I knew at that moment that she was going to be my wife. I was so confident in that, I even sent word to her through my brother-in-law. Two things. One, she was dating a guy at the time, and I said, he's temporary. Two, that if she ever went out with me one time, she would marry me. Now, it took her a little bit longer to figure that out because it was actually a year later that she called me and asked me out on our first date. And uh, see, she said yes. And uh, so I just remember that moment, you know, just kind of looking. She walks in the room, we lock eyes. We see it at weddings. One of my favorite things about doing weddings is the moment the bride comes through the door and the groom locks eyes with his bride for the first time, knowing that as she walks down that aisle, they're fixing to be one. I've watched guys hyperventilate. I I literally was doing a wedding one time, and I was like, you have got to stop. Because I am not, if you pass out, we're just going to call it off. Um, Had guys just duck with just tears in their eyes, And then, I'm an expert at this, there's nothing greater than seeing a mom lock eyes with her baby for the first time when they're born. Now, I can tell you as an expert, because I have witnessed it six times, uh, that dads, you mean nothing at that moment. Zero. Uh, Not a thing. Only thing you're told to do is go get me some food. And, uh, but that moment when that mom locks eyes with uh, that baby for the first time, and it, it is something special. And I believe that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to do. I know he was trying to get the people in those days to do it. Just look and gaze and lock eyes with Jesus. Because out of everything else, he is the most important. Looking in the face of Jesus, and I believe that the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, nails it. Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus look full into his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When have you ever been going through something, and it seems like it's just going to overtake you, and you just pause long enough to either pick up your Bible and read it, or just start listening to a song, or even just saying the name of Jesus, that whatever it is you're going through seems to just kind of fade into the background. 
Well, that's what needs to happen with us, is that everything else needs to fade into the background, and we just need to look into the face of Jesus. And I believe, as we study this, you're going to see that, because the writer of Hebrews wants the listeners, the people who are receiving this letter, he wants them to understand that no matter what's going on around you, no matter what this is saying or that person's saying, no matter what you're feeling, that when we just lock eyes with Jesus, everything else changes. And I believe in a world uh, filled with so many distractions and so much noise. And then we have a relentless enemy uh, that lies and tells you that you are not enough or that your failures will determine your future. It is easy for us to take our eyes off of Jesus or at best glance at him. My prayer is, as I've been preparing for this and studying through the book of Hebrews again, is that we'll just stop. We'll gaze at Jesus. We'll look into his wonderful face as the architect of our lives, the artist of the masterpiece of our lives, who we know in later in Hebrews, it says the author and finisher of our faith, that we'll just stop long enough just to look at him. Because I'm telling you, when you lock eyes with Jesus, everything else changes. So who is he writing to? I think in order to get the full effect of this book, you've got to understand that. And he's writing to three groups of people. One group is Hebrew Christians. These are people who are first generation and first century Christians. They have been raised in Judaism. They have been raised in the law. And then Jesus comes along. He dies on the cross. He's risen from the grave. And the gospel is being spread forth. And all of a sudden, is even the book of uh, the New Testament means a new covenant. Everything's changing because of Jesus. And so here's a group of people who have accepted Jesus, as we say, our, as Lord and Savior. And they're believing the gospel. They've tasted the freedom of the gospel. But then there's this pull to go back into Judaism. Because that is how they were raised. It, it's easy for us to kind of go, well, I just can't believe they would even do that. But think about this. Think if somebody walked in here today. How many people have been raised in church? How many of you have been raised in a Baptist church? Okay. So just imagine that somebody walks in here today and tells us that everything that we have ever been taught was wrong. We'd probably run them out of here as a heretic, right? I mean, we would, because we believe what the Bible says. So they have believed, but then they've been taught all of these other things, so there's this pull. And in that pool, the moment they receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, they are ostracized with their, from their families. Imagine going home today. You've been saved by the blood of Jesus. You've come to the altar. You've repented of your sins. You've been forgiven. And you go home all excited, and you run through the door, and you go, Mom, Dad, guess what? I got saved. And they said, pack your bags and get out. It would devastate us. Well, that's what was happening to them. They would come in all excited about this, this Jesus and all that he's done, and he's setting them free, and they're being told by their own flesh and blood to get out. Not only that, they were being hated and even persecuted. Imagine going into Somerville today. Many of us are probably going to go to a restaurant and eat, and you go in that restaurant, you just found Jesus, and or he found you, and, and you're all excited about it, and you walk in, and you're telling them, and somebody drug you out into the parking lot at Milano's, because that seems to be where a lot of worn people go. 
They drag you out in the parking lot of Milano's and they stone you because you come in there talking about Jesus. That's what was going on in their lives. They were literally being ostracized, they were being persecuted, and they were hated. And on top of that, they began to try to mix Judaism and all the things of the law with now what is known as the gospel. And so he's writing to them, going, please understand that Jesus is greater. That's why as you walk through Hebrews, we'll reference Leviticus a whole bunch because he's going, Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is better than the sacrifice. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But then there's another group of people, the Jewish non-Christians, who were intellectually convinced, if you want to use that term. And we all know people like this. These are the people that come in, they hear about Jesus, they hear the gospel, and, and they are all, man, I believe what you say, but I'm just not ready to commit to that yet. I don't know how many times over the years I've shared the gospel with people, and they're like, man, I believe what you're saying, and I can even tell in my heart that it's true, but I'm just not ready. I remember talking to a lady in Ecuador one time who was weeping we talked to her for two hours, weeping, saying, I want with everything I am to believe what you're saying, and I do believe it. But the moment that I say that I accept Christ and I tell my husband, he will beat me. And I'm just not ready to be beat or beaten. Intellectually convinced, but just not at the place. Jesus said these are people that love the approval of men more than God. When they simply rejected Jesus. And so we'll talk about it in Hebrews. People that reject Jesus, there is no hope for those people. Because he's the only one that can save us. So you reject the only person that can save you, then there's no hope. Then there's the Jewish non-Christians who were not convinced. These were the people coming in saying, Oh, this is just a bunch of nonsense. This whole thing about Jesus is false, is fake. Uh, I had a professor in uh, mid-America, Dr. Skinner, who said those people are lost as ball in high weeds. I mean, they are totally rejecting anything. They refuse to believe anything good or anything about Jesus. But the writer is going, it doesn't really matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you believe. You could come in here and say all day that Jesus is not real. It doesn't negate the fact that he is who he says he is. And he did exactly what he came to do. So this is the approach. This is the way that you come into Hebrews is understanding those three groups. And as we walk through it, I'll point out to us, well, this is the groups he's specifically talking to at this time. Now, if you go to, to point two, and this is the reason I'm changing this, is these are some things that we'll learn through the book. I was going to actually go through all this today, but we're going to ta tackle some of these. Uh, Jesus is exclusive. We'll talk about that, that Jesus is exclusive in his person. We'll talk about why he's ex exclusive in his person, but in his purpose, there's no one that did or could do what Jesus has done. And then in his plan, oh, he has such an amazing plan, and it's sovereign, and it is fail-proof. But then also, Jesus is exalted. We even see it in this, and we'll talk a little bit about it today. He's exalted. There's power in his name. I mean, just the name of Jesus. I don't know if we get that sometimes, but literally, 
There is power in the name of Jesus. The position of his person is exalted. And then the posture of his people, we are called to exalt him. So we'll go through that. Now we can go back to the first part. That's what we're going to take time in today is this first few verses. Have you ever wondered why there are benches in art galleries? Anybody ever wondered? I, as a Fayette County boy, can tell you that I've never been to too many art galleries. And my thought of a bench in an art gallery is because I'm bored and need somewhere to sit down and let everybody else walk around. But the reason there's benches in art galleries is so people can sit down and do what? Focus and gaze on the piece of art that they're looking at. That they don't just walk by and go, wow, that's weird. We have a daughter right now that's, that's doing some paintings, and last Sunday they were doing some abstract painting, and I'm looking at it, and I am trying my best to figure it out, and I just don't get it. It's beautiful, um, and, and I'll sell it to anybody in the room who wants it. <laughs> but I don't understand it. And that bench is so you can sit down and really study and understand what that artist is trying to say maybe through that painting or through that sculpture. And I believe in Hebrews 1, that's exactly what God wants us to do, is just kind of take a seat, sit down, and let him show us his masterpiece that's in his son. And that's what he says, that, that God, and I love the writer of Hebrews because he wastes no time. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets... And you think about it, man's accomplished many things throughout history. Man has invented a lot. I, I love it when people go, well, man created this. Can I tell you something? Man can't create. Man can only invent. He can only take something that's already been created and invent something from that. But man, as capable as he is, you know, the whole thing of going to the moon. And just recently, um, we were at a Blue Oval meeting a meeting with a lady or um, Tiffany, Adrian, and I went, and it was a liaison between Ford and, and basically all of us uh, people out here is kind of what she said it. And they were talking about, in the future, how they're going to charge these electric vehicles. And she said, if you ever taken your phone and you've laid it down on the on your charging station, I still plug mine in. I don't have the charging station. I actually looked at one the other day. It was 150 bucks. I'm like, no. Uh, I still plug mine in. But she was going, if you lay your phone on that charging station and it just lays there and it charges while it's laying there, that 25 to 30 years from now that they're going to take and put things in the road system that as a car is driving on the road, it will charge it. And that's like way beyond my thinking. And as smart as man is, man is incapable of one thing, and that is getting to God. All through history, and you can start in the Bible, God has always had to what? Come to man. Always. And that's exactly what's going on. That's exactly what's being said here. God, who at various ways and in various times spoke what? In times past to us by the prophets. That's how he did it. And I love Genesis 3.15 because when you read it, it is actually the first prophetic word in Scripture. God, after the fall, after Adam and Eve had fallen, God is addressing everyone, and he speaks to the serpent, and God said this to him. And I love it because in 14 it says, God said to the serpent. It's like, you need to pay attention here, man. God said to the serpent. It's like, this is fixing to get real 
serious. This is what he told him. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and he shall and you shall bruise his heel. For the first time we see in Scripture, we see God speaking, and what is he talking about? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. So right there, he begins to speak, and who's he saying? He's saying, My son. The seed of the woman, he's coming, and he is going to absolutely, the King James says he's going to crush your head. I like it a little bit better. He's going to crush your head. And so from there throughout the rest of the Old Testament is what? Pointing to Jesus. Everything we see is bringing Jesus closer and closer and closer. It's like taking and looking through your binoculars and getting the focus right, and it's bringing something closer so you can see it. And for the first time, God said, hey, my son, the Redeemer, he's coming, and he's bringing redemption when he comes. So you may think you dealt us a blow in the, the devil, but guess what? You have already lost. You've got to think that the enemy head is arrogant and cocky and haughty and stupid as he is. You had to think that he was trembling just a little bit. That he's coming. And I don't know exactly what it may look like, but he's coming and he is going to take me out. So from that very moment, every word spoken, every sign ever done was pointing to the one Jesus. And I love what Warren Wiersbe says about it. He said, God has spoken to us in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is God's last word. Nothing will replace what God has said to us through his Son. If you want to know him, you must come to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega. His ministry is the ministry of revelation. He reveals God to us. God, who in various ways and at various times has spoken to us in days past. How? By the prophets. But then he says this. But in these last days, in these last days, he has spoken to us, how? Through his son. In the last days, in a little town called Bethlehem, in a manger, Jesus came. All that was pointing beforehand was pointing to this moment that he was going to come. Now, he didn't come with all the pomp and circumstance that they thought. He didn't come with the big entourage, but heaven had a praise break. And Jesus came, and what did he do? He came, he lived, he died, he won, he ascended, he is seated, and he is exalted. So now, how do we see him? Well, he tells us right here. In the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then he goes into this pretty amazing thing. Man says a lot, but God spoke. And in this brief but potent introduction of his son... It's amazing. It's like, wow. You remember earlier in the New Testament when God came and he said, This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Now he's going, well, let me just tell you who he is. And he says this. He is appointed heir of all things. God has appointed his son to this role. All that belongs to God belongs to Jesus. Psalm 2, 6-8 says, Yet 
I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And in Revelation 5, we see this come to fruition. They're standing there, and it says that they are weeping because they can find no one who can open the seal. And it says all of a sudden, here's one who came forth, the Lamb. And all of a sudden, they're saying, worthy is the Lamb. Why? Because he is the heir of all things. He is the only one that can open it because he's the only one it belongs to. It's his. And he's saying right here in, the, in, in, in Hebrews, he's going, hey, he's heir of all things. If you don't believe in him, if you don't want to trust in him, it doesn't change a thing. He is my son, and everything that is mine, I have given it to him. And then we see in Revelation 5, worthy is the lamb who is able to open the seals. But then he tells us, he says, he is the creator of all things. Where did it come from? Who conceived it? Who made it? Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and him, in him all things consist. And then John 1.3, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus is the creator of all things. God, the Bible says God conceived it, Jesus created it. And then he doesn't stop there, he says, but he's also the radiance of what glory. He says not only is he the heir of all things, not only is he appointed heir of all things, but he's also the brightness of his glory. The word here in the Greek is the only time it is used in the entire New Testament. It's used right here, and it means to shine forth from a source. So Jesus is the light. 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. John 1, 45, in him Jesus was life, and the life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So what is Jesus? He is the radiance. He is radiating God. God is light. Jesus came in human form, and Jesus is the light. He is the one that radiates the glory of God. John 1, 14 says that he came and dwelt among us. Jesus came, took on the human flesh. He veiled the glory because if he hadn't availed it, we couldn't look at him and live. Exodus 33, Moses got really brave. He was feeling good about himself that day. He says, hey, God, we're close. We're buddies. We're friends. Can I see you? I mean, come on. Nobody else is around. Can, can I look at you? And God said, Moses, no man can look at me and live. But I'll tell you what I'll do for you. Get into the cleft of the rock, and when I pass by, I'll let you know, and you can see my backside. So God walks by and touches him, and he looks. The Bible says when Moses come down off of the mountain, that his face was glowing so much that they had to veil Moses' face because of the glow. 
God, who in various ways and in various times in days past has spoken to us through His prophets, but in these last days of what's spoken to us through His Son. Jesus comes as the light radiating the glory of God. He veils it. It doesn't mean that He's any less God. He puts on flesh so He could walk with us, but it never took away the fact that He was here for one reason, and that's to bring glory and to radiate the light of God to man. He is the radiance of the glory of God. I am so thankful that we have Jesus. Then it says that He is the exact representation. He is the express image of His person. It's the Greek word character. And it means a stamp or a carbon copy. This is another word that's only used in Hebrews. When you look at Jesus, what do you look? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've what? Seen the Father. Why? Because Jesus is God. He says, so when you look at me, I am the perfect imprint of God in time and in space. God comes, dwelt dwells among us in John 1.14. Jesus tabernacles. The Bible says he comes and he pitches a tent. He tabernacles what? With us. Why? So we could see him. And if you've seen Jesus, then you have seen the Father. When we get to heaven, you know how we're going to see God? Through Jesus. Because he's the only one in the Godhead who has taken on flesh. And so he is the exact representation. But then he's the sustainer of all things. He has created it and he maintains it. He continually and actively holds it all together. It is the literal meaning. Y'all remember this little, the song growing up? Some of y'all are going to tell your age, he's got the whole world. Yeah, man, y'all sound good this morning. Go ahead and sing it. Yep, yep, right over here. They're killing it on this side. I don't know how to do all that, but anyway, y'all got it. It's literally what it means. He is the sustainer of all things. He's got the whole world in his hands. Praise the Lord that he's got it in his hands, because if he didn't have it in his hands, it really would get crazy and chaotic. So he is a sustainer. But then it gets even better because it says that he's upholding all these things by the word of his power. And then it says when he had... What by himself purged our sins. He's a supreme sacrifice. Man, it's awesome that he is there of all things. It's amazing that he is the creator. He is the glory. He is exact representation that he has sustained it. But for you and me, this is the most important one. Because the wages of sin is death. But it's been paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. See, my story doesn't be, it's not the wages of sin is death. My story is the wages of sin was death. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, I now have eternal life through him. So he's a supreme sacrifice. He took on the sins of the entire world. Jesus stood in front of God's wrath and took it for you and me. 
And think about this. We kind of treat that as a one-time deal. But if you leave this world lost without Jesus, the wrath of God will not be a one-time event. It will be a forever and ever moment by moment, minute by minute, second by second. We talk about the cross and how uh, bloody and how awful it was and how God brought his wrath upon Jesus for our sins. And it's terrible and it's, it's one of the most grotesque things you could ever partake in. And just listen to me here. If you leave out of here lost and you take your last breath, that wrath that was poured on Jesus at the cross will be poured on you forever. And ever, and ever. But Jesus, by himself, purged our sins. And so he is the supreme sacrifice. He took on what should have come to us. And those who received Christ, he died once, then Hebrews says, for the sins of many. His sacrifice was the propitiation, the satisfaction of wrath, of God's wrath for our sin. I'm thankful for Calvary, and I'm thankful for Jesus, and he deserves for us just to sometimes sit down and just look at him in the face. And the last thing is he is the exalted king. It says this, because after he had purged our sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down, meaning he took his place of honor. He's at the right hand, meaning that he, is at a, he has authority and rest. And the majesty on high, he is at the throne of God interceding for us. The most amazing thing is this. We're sitting here today. Whatever you're going through, whatever your needs are, whether it be bad news, whether it be a bad circumstance, or whether the fact that you're lost, there is Jesus in heaven, the one that God spoke to us through. The creator, the sustainer, the express image, the radiance of glory. He is sitting at the right hand of God today, and he is praying for you. That's not some far-fetched idea. That's not some myth. That's not some fictional story. There's literally a person named Jesus who came and bled and died, the only begotten Son of God that is sitting at the right, the right hand of God today at the throne, and he's looking down, and he's calling your name out on your behalf to his Father so that he will touch and reach and save you. Amen. That is the Jesus that we're being introduced to in Hebrews. So, I'm just going to wrap it up by doing this. Jesus is enough. <laughs> I don't know how you feel, but I can just tell you, he's enough. Amen. With Jesus, there is a surplus. And I love what, what Webster says about this. The word surplus literally means the amount that remains when the need is satisfied. And you know what I love about that is because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. He could have said, hey, Father, that's it. I've paid for their sins, now they can figure it out. But the fact is that he's a surplus, and he just doesn't 
come to satisfy God's judgment. He comes so that we can have life and have life more abundantly. Our, our victory doesn't start when we get to heaven. Our victory started the day that we received the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ called the gospel in our lives, and we repented and believed by faith and trusted him to be our Savior, and we've been walking with him since. In 1997, victory started in my life because that's when I got saved. And I'm not going to wait until I get to heaven and enjoy my victory. So he is a surplus. That's why David could say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And, and man looks at everything. Like, we, we look at everything. And most of the time, what we need is standing right in front of us. And it's Jesus. I remember in 2011, when we started Grace Point. And I really was young and green. And all I knew was that I was called to start a church. That's all I knew. And all I heard was words like this. What's your strategy? What's your structure? You got to come up with this. You got to come up with that. And I would spend my days trying to define and figure out those words. So much so that on a Saturday night, I looked at Tiffany and I said, I think I need to go to the hospital. I said, I think I'm having a heart attack. So she takes me to the hospital, and on that Sunday morning when I should have been preaching, I was laying on my back, and Jesus just said, Matthew, if you'll stop looking past me and start looking at me, I will come up with the strategy. I will come up with the structure, and I will give you everything you need. Stop looking past me. Why? Because with Jesus, there's a surplus. The little boy with five loaves and two fishes. I mean, think about it. The disciples were sitting home with a basket each. I never found in the Bible and in research where they had to call for pizza delivery or donkey dash. <laughs> I've just never seen it. It's that Jesus is enough. The woman with the issue of blood. She had enough about her that said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. She, she was like, I don't even need to touch him. If I can just, well, I don't need to touch Jesus. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. So she pressed and she pushed and she fought through the crowd. And not only the crowd, the ridicule because she was bleeding profusely. She probably had an odor about her. She was deemed unclean and people were looking at her. Why is she here? And she pressed and she pressed and she pressed. And she finally touched the hem of his garment. And the Bible says that the moment that she touched it, the virtue left his body. She was immediately healed. He spun around. And where she was just trying to touch his hem, she got all of Jesus. And I have never read where she went back to the doctors. Why? Because Jesus is enough. I think about this. Old Zacchaeus just wanted to see Jesus. He didn't have any expectations. He's like, if I can just climb his tree, I just want to see him. What he didn't realize is that Jesus was going to go to his house, throw a dinner party for all of the outcasts and the dirty people, and in the process, he was going to change Zacchaeus' life. So much so that Zacchaeus said, not only am I going to give back what I've taken, I'm going to give it back way more than I ever took. Why? Because Jesus 
is enough. And with Jesus, he doesn't need a, a supplement. There's no deficiency with Jesus. We don't have to add a vita this or a vita that. I mean, he is all we need. And what's amazing, historically, people have tried to add to what Jesus has done, right? Like Jesus died on the cross, rose out of the grave, ascended to heaven, and while he was dying, he saved the thief on the cross. But we have people who's like, well, you know, I don't know, maybe we need to be baptized. And then there's those who go, yeah, but we need to be baptized and baptized again. And then there's those who say we need to be baptized once, and we need to be baptized twice, and then we need to speak in this language to show evidence that we were ever saved in the first place. Jesus does not need help. I think Jesus is going, I don't need your help. That's why he said, let's think about it. God said, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus in John 14 says, hey, listen, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one can come to the Father, what? Except by me. He's telling us, I don't need your help. Just come. I'm enough. So there is no supplement. There's no adding on to who Jesus is and what he's done. And then we all know he is sufficient. And I think Colossians 2, 8 and 10 is a great reminder of it. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. That's exactly what was going on in Hebrews. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Jesus is everything that you need. And what's it say? You are what? Complete in him. So, so he is sufficient. I, I mean, everything that I need, I found in Jesus. He is complete. He is complete in me. And so he is sufficient. And so what we see in Hebrews is we see the fullness of, and the finality of God's redemption through Jesus. Because, listen, I never have read in the Bible where the woman at the well comes back thirsty. I've never read in the Bible where the lame man went to therapy or that the blind man needed a second opinion. I've never read where the beggars and the lepers, right, have gone back and asked Jesus to touch them again. Why? Because Jesus is enough. And it's amazing to me, how we say we believe it, we, we sing about it, but do we really let that be and appropriate that in our lives? In the church, we can spend so much time trying to figure out everything. We'll talk about buildings and budgets and beliefs. We'll talk about all those things, and we so often just forget that, like, Jesus. The, the, the statistics is this, that in the next 10 years, whether you like it or not, in Fayette County or in the surrounding counties, there's going to be 100,000 people move in. And there, there, we get emails and phone calls like, man, we need to strategize. No, what we need to do is get on our face and call out to Jesus. But we spend so much time 
trying to figure it all out on our own that we so often look past Jesus. And we're all guilty of it. Everybody in the room's guilty of it. And, and I, this is kind of the way I see it. It's like Jesus is standing there, and, and we've all done it. You know, somebody comes up to you, and they're just talking to you, and, man, they're pouring it out, and they're excited that they're getting to talk to you. And two things. One, you're like, I, what's their name? And the second thing is, is they're, like, telling you all of this, and you're kind of just looking past them. And they're just pouring it out. Man, you know, this and this, and you're just kind of looking past them. And that is exactly what we do with Jesus. Jesus is coming and says, hey, come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus is saying, come, those who are thirsty, and you can drink of this water of life freely. If you're hungry, you don't have to pay a thing. Jesus is saying, come. Jesus is saying, I'm everything you need. And we're just looking right past him. Isn't it amazing that Jesus is enough? Warren Wiersbe says this in closing. Great names come and go, but the name of Jesus remains. The devil still hates it, the world still opposes it, but God still blesses it. And when we can still claim it. In the name of Jesus is the key that unlocks the door of prayer and the treasury of God's grace. It's the weapon that defeats the enemy and the motivation that compels our sacrifice and service. It's the name that causes our hearts to rejoice and our lips to sing praise. God in these last days has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. Can I ask you a question this morning in closing? Be honest with the Lord. Where's your focus? Where's your focus? Who is your eyes locked on? Are you gazing into the eyes of Jesus? Because I can tell you something, Hebrews is just going to put Jesus right in front of us every time we talk about it. Matthew is going to talk about Jesus coming back and being right in front of us. So who are your eyes locked on? Are you staring at your insecurities? Please listen to me this morning. I didn't say all of that. Just to say, wow, I just got through preaching. I said it because I want you to understand that there is something about that name. There is something about that person. He's just not somebody that we read about in Scripture. Jesus really did come to change your life. Jesus come to save us. But then he came to, to give us life. And I think even in this room right here, probably more than not, you're staring at your insecurities instead of staring at Jesus. I can't do that. Maybe something that startled you in your past and it has caused you to be insecure in your life and instead of looking at Jesus, you look at that insecurity. I would say that probably more than not, 
there are people in this room whose eyes are locked on their past. God, I did this. Lord, I did that. God, if, if they knew half of what you know about me, they wouldn't even let me be a member of the church. And Jesus is just sitting there saying, come. Your past is your past, and, and let's move forward. That's what grace is all about. Maybe in here and you're focused on your failures. Maybe you've made a mess of it. I have. I ain't going to lie to you. I've made a mess more than I've made good. Maybe you've messed up in your marriage. Maybe you've messed up in your relationships. Maybe you've messed up financially. Maybe you've messed up in addiction. Maybe you've messed up in all those things. And you sit here today and you're like, man, I just, I can't because I have failed so many times. Lock eyes with Jesus. Say the name of Jesus. Because here's the reality. Jesus is enough. With Jesus, chains fall. You may be in your day and you may be chained down to something. Jesus will break those chains. Maybe you're prisoner to something today. Jesus will unlock that door. Maybe you sit in here today and you say, I got this news and Outside of the Lord, it will, can I tell you something, miracles still happen. Miracles still happen. I still believe that God heals from cancer. I believe that God heals from depression. I believe that God can reach down and stop a blood disease. I say that not because I've read it, not because I paid it to go to seminary and learn it. I say it because I've experienced it in our lives. Doctor calls and says, your wife has cancer. She's pregnant, but she has cancer. We refused to believe that. You know what I did? We called a group of people in our life that we knew would pray over her. And we met on a Monday night. And I'll be honest with you, I was bold enough because I believe what James says. And I told the people that walked in the room, I said, if you got sin in your life and you're not willing to confess it, I need you to leave. Because I believe what James says, confess your faults one to another, and I believe it. It says that if we call of the elders of the church, And if we anoint with oil and we pray the prayer of faith that you'll be healed. We prayed. That next week, we went back to the doctor and the doctor said, there is no sign of cancer. Man didn't do it. The doctor didn't do it. There's only one answer. And his name is Jesus. 
And we sit here and we say, man, can he do it? Yes, he can do it. I think the reason we don't see it as much as they may be used to is because we don't have the faith that they used to. We overthink it. We look past Jesus. I love doctors, but they don't have the final say-so. God does. So miracles happen. Deliverance takes place. Story after story of people that have been hung up on drugs or alcohol or porn. And listen, guys, I'm not knocking rehab. I'm not knocking help. But I also know of testimonies and stories where men have got down on their knees and repented and God delivered them on the spot. And I believe that God can still do that. If you've got a broken relationship, don't give up. God's still in the restoration business. At the name of Jesus, demons tremble. I don't say it because I've read about it. I say it because I've watched it happen. I've watched the chains fall. I've watched the devil flee. I've watched people who were hopeless have hope. I've seen forgiveness take place of two men. One shot one 20 years prior, and in a church service one night in a revival, they met in the altar, come down the aisle, and forgave one another. I've watched forgiveness flow. I've seen doubt diminish. I've seen fear fall. Why? One name. Jesus. Jesus. Just say it with me, church. Jesus. Come on, say it like you mean it today. Jesus. At that very name of Jesus, darkness flees. Chains fall. And today, that very name that you just spoke says, come. Don't look past me. Don't glance at me. Just come and look at me. And I tell you something, when you gaze into the eyes of Jesus, everything else will grow strangely dim. So I don't know how you walked in here this morning. Maybe you come in here dragging a load. Maybe you come in here filled with doubt, filled with worry. Maybe you walked in here today with hatred in your heart, bitterness. Maybe you come in today having a bad diagnosis from the doctor. Maybe you come in here today fear and trembling of a relationship that's about to break. Maybe you come in here today and don't even know how you're going to buy groceries tomorrow. Jesus is the answer. And I plead with you this morning that if you have a need in your life, he's the answer. And Jesus will meet you right where you're at. So church, I'm going to invite you today. If you need anything, if you need to pray, if you need to be saved, just come to Jesus. He will never turn you away. So God has spoken to us in these last days through his son, Jesus. Father, we come to you today. God, we're thankful for Jesus. Lord, we could go on and on and on and on. 
And I'm just thankful that he is our prophet, our priest, and our soon-coming king. God, right here in this moment, he's all we need. He's our restoration. He's our provider. He's our protector. He's our shield. He's the horn of our salvation. God, he's our sacrifice, our redeemer. Lord, he's everything we need. And Lord, today I'm just praying that if there are people in need, God, that they'll just come, simply bow down and just speak the name of Jesus. And God, we will praise you because you're the only one worthy of it. And we will talk about you and we will tell people about you and all the good things you've done. And Father, we do love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons. If you want to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org.